Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Revelation, chapter 11, verses 1 through 14. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the city for 42 months. And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouth and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have the power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now when they had finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who lived on the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to the heavens in a cloud, while their enemies looked on. At that very hour there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake. And the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming. This is the word of the Lord. Someone asked me this week, uh, what are you going to preach about? And my response was, I'm going to do my best to bore you. Then following the second service, someone else told me my sermon sounded like a lecture. So I accomplished my goal. Um, seriously, today I'm going to dig into some stuff, okay? So if you're inclined to note-taking, this would be a good one. Uh, get ready. It's not going to be exciting. I don't begin with a wonderful illustration. I just want to dig into some things. So the first thing I want to say is this. Let's admit something together, shall we? The Bible is often very puzzling, okay? Now, some people don't think the Bible's puzzling. That's because they think they've got it all figured out, and unfortunately, they're wrong because they don't. The Bible is puzzling. Sometimes the Bible is really bothersome because it says things, it speaks in certain ways that are offensive or we don't want to receive. We don't want to accept it. Those two realities are eminently clear in the book of Revelation. Puzzling and off-putting. Last week we talked about an off-putting theme. 
which was divine judgment. Now, why is this an off-putting thing? Because in our culture, we routinely want to believe that God is a God of love, which is true, but that's all we want to believe about God. We don't want to believe that God is also a God of judgment, but that's true in the Scripture, so we have to wrestle with it. So last week, when I talked about the judgment of God, just a quick rehearsal, I tried to make a distinction between different approaches to judgment. One approach to judgment might be what I call the supernaturalist approach. In other words, the judgment of God is always proactive. It's bombastic, if I could use that word. It's an earthquake. It's a fire. It's the heavens opening up. It's the earth creating a cavity so people fall in. It's a plague, right? That's true. Sometimes the judgment of God is like that. But often, people reserve exclusivity for God's judgment in that category. That's the way God judges, period. Some people reject that altogether. Say, that's not God's judgment. God doesn't judge like that. The way God judges is allows you to suffer the results of your own foolishness, your own sin. And routinely things come upon you and come upon a society that are the result of our own foolishness and our own sin, and that's the judgment of God. I called that in the first service a naturalist approach, right? Just the natural consequences of sin. In the second service last week, I misspoke and called it a materialist approach. That just muddied the waters altogether. What I do want to say is that supernaturalist and naturalist okay, let me admit it, are terms that I made up for this purpose, okay? You're not going to go into apocalyptic literature and see those two terms. You might see them, but they won't refer to the same thing. I was just trying to describe two extremes. And then I said, suppose we approach it from what I called a sovereignist perspective. That is, that God is sovereign, And on occasion, he judges catastrophically and proactively and miraculously. And on other occasions, the judgment of God comes because of natural consequences of our sins. That's a broader, fuller, and I think more realistic understanding of the judgment of God. It's both. But God does judge. That was last week, and I'm already five minutes into the time that I'm supposed to use for the sermon this week. This week, it's not so much about judgment, although it's there. This week, well, this week is even more difficult because routinely the book of Revelation is said to be the most troubling or puzzling book in the Bible. And routinely, the scholars say that chapter 11 is the most troubling, puzzling, absolutely hard-to-understand chapter in the book of Revelation. So my point is, we're right in the crosshairs, right? We're right in the crosshairs of disturbing, hard-to-understand themes in chapter 11. In order to explore those themes, I want to remind you of four categories that I have mentioned before. I didn't make these up. These are real. And the four categories are an interpretive tool that theologians, lots of them, use to understand the book of Revelation. 
So one interpretive tool that we've mentioned before is the historicist approach to apocalyptic literature. What is the historicist understanding of chapter 11? I'm going to reduce, reduce chapter 11 to just a few things to help you understand what's going on here from the historicist perspective. A historicist looks at chapter 11 that was just read and sees the measuring of the temple. Remember that? The measuring of the temple as a symbolic way that John is called in the vision to understand the remnant of true Christ followers on the earth. The outer part, not true Christ followers. The inner part of the temple, true Christ followers. And from a historicist perspective, you know what the interpretation was in the Great Reformation? You might already have guessed. The papal authority of the Catholic Church was the outer court. In other words, the papal authority that dominated the Roman Empire, the Holy Roman Empire, was the false church. The church that had gone astray from the original message of the gospel. And the remnant, or the true church, was what was emerging in the Great Reformation. Now, you might say, well, that's kind of judgmental. The Catholics are horrible and the Protestants are good. You've never heard me say such a thing in this pulpit, okay? I'm not making that statement. However, before we rush to judgment that this is a condemnation of everybody but us, let's remember the historical location that this theory emerges out of. It emerges out of an oppressive Roman Empire that was directed by the Pope who was the emperor and the spiritual leader and the warrior who slaughtered thousands and thousands of people in crusades and the one who oppressed the Protestant Reformation again violently. So imagine yourself in that historical situation. When you read chapter 11 of Revelation, you might actually say, yeah, that makes sense. The 1260 days are seen symbolically as the 1260 years of papal domination of the church. That's an interesting correlation. And the two witnesses whose bodies lay in the street after they've been slain, they saw those two witnesses as symbolic of the pre-Reformation people and groups that challenged the papal authority and tried to bring this church to its senses. That's an interesting interpretation too. When we come to the preterist understanding of chapter 11, it looks something like this. The measuring that I mentioned, the temple, it indicates the dividing of the holy and the profane. That is, those who are Christ followers and those who are not. 
And some of the Christ followers following Jesus as Messiah were both Jews and Gentiles. And that remnant, according to the preterist's point of view, was preserved from the massive destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 A.D. Furthermore, the 1260 days, according to the preterist's point of view, is a period that's often called the Jewish War and or the persecution of Nero against the church. And the preterist view of the two witnesses, routinely stated as James and Peter, James and Peter, but unnamed witnesses in the text before the destruction of the temple. Of course, James and Peter were both famously martyrs in the early church. Again, you look at those and you think, well, that's interesting. It doesn't quite match up today. A preterist holds firmly to that. A preterist says, these events in the book of Revelation have already taken place for the most part. A futurist is the third one that we have discussed on occasion. The futurist approach I would call the most complex, especially when it comes to chapter 11, because there's various various perspectives among the futurists. Frequently, the futurists are lumped in a category called dispensationalist. The futurists basically say this, and, and all of this, by the way, is a, a hideously oversimplified summary of these positions, okay? So don't act like you're expecting me to give you all the details, because if you are, you'd just be disappointed. I'm not. A futurist point of view, generally speaking, of this passage is that this is a picture, this measuring, a picture of the real temple, the one that will be rebuilt in Jerusalem in the last days. The 1260 days, they believe to be some form of the great tribulation. Whether three and a half years twice as a total of seven or two different periods, it represents the literal great tribulation. And the two particular individuals that appear, some in the futurist perspective, believe them to be the coming back in a literal sense of Elijah and Moses, or maybe Elijah and Enoch. Elijah and Enoch are interesting candidates because according to the Bible, neither of them suffered death. They were taken immediately to be of the Lord. Those two individuals, two prophets, could possibly return and fulfill this prophecy. And then, of course, rise again after they're killed. The final that I've mentioned before is a spiritualist interpretation of the text. Spiritualist interpretation of the text would be that the temple is being measured and it indicates the true believers and those who are only in name believers, the outer court. That is, those who are truly a part of the church of Jesus Christ and the larger mass of people that are called the visible church.
the church everywhere, every building, every location, every people group that claims Jesus Christ in some fashion. Those are the two categories that are being measured. The 1260 days, according to a spiritualist, is frequently symbolic of the church age. Not in terms of exact years or months, but symbolic of the church age until the coming of Christ. And the two witnesses are frequently referred to as symbolic figures, namely Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah, you remember the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus appears between the two? Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets, all coming together perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ. So those two figures are symbolic of what happens in the church of Jesus Christ. And the church of Christ itself is indeed the persecuted witnesses. That's an overview. Now for the best interpretation, which is mine. No, just a joke. Laugh now, I'm serious. Mine's not the best interpretation. Along with many others, and I won't go into the details um, of who and what and when. I think that chapter 11 basically looks like this. It seems like to me that chapter 11 when it comes to the measuring of the temple, is definitely symbolic. I don't think it's literal. I think it's figurative, and if you study apocalyptic literature, you will see connections all the time between Revelation and Ezekiel and Zechariah and Daniel. I think it's figurative in much the same way that Ezekiel 40 and Zechariah 2 are symbolic for something else. I'm not inclined, by the way, and I call myself out for those of you who would disagree on this, and there are going to be people who don't like this at all. I'm not inclined to believe that the measuring of the temple is literally the measuring of the temple that supposedly will be reconstructed in the end days in Jerusalem in that land. Nor am I inclined to see the measuring of the temple as a spiritual measuring of the temple that comes down from heaven to earth. As a matter of fact, what I'm inclined to see is the church of Jesus Christ, the new community, the new Israel that is now on the earth representing the gospel of Jesus Christ in a symbolic way. By the way, whether or not this is compelling to you, it is to me. By the time John wrote the book of Revelation, uniformly, the early church had come to the conclusion that it was the representation of the new Israel, that it was the representation of the presence of Jesus Christ, that it was the representation of the followers who are committed to sharing the Messiah's message. It was the new Israel. That's what they understood to be true. And it seems to me that the readers would have thought that when they heard this. The reference to the several numbers 
that I have mentioned in chapter 11. It's very interesting because I think, as I do, and I've referred to this before, that all the numbers in the book of Revelation are symbolic and not literal. Three and a half years, uh, interestingly enough, is half of seven. The number seven is the number of perfection or completeness. What's also interesting is that the 42 months, in terms of 30-day calendars, add up to 1,260 days. There, there is some symbolism going on here that I think speaks theologically to the reality that we're experiencing now. I'm not sure what the conclusions are about that reality, but it seems like that is the symbolism. I also believe that the two witnesses are symbolic of the church of Jesus Christ. Not unlike the Mount of Transfiguration with the law represented by Moses, the prophets by Elijah, completely converging into the person of Jesus Christ who fulfills both the law and the prophets. The testimony or the gospel of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Elijah and Moses, the law and the prophets that converge. And in this passage, it seems to be the church of Jesus Christ and that dual witness, both law and prophet in the Christian message, is the symbolic relationship that's going on. Ezekiel chapter 37, in my opinion, is probably what John had in mind when he talked about the two witnesses being raised from the dead. Remember Ezekiel chapter 37, the dry bones, and God breathes life into them, another apocalyptic passage? The church could be, for all intents and purposes, utterly destroyed as an entity on earth, or seems to be. And God, even through the tribulation, is going to restore the church and resurrect it as if it were once dead. The result of this, this resurrection of the two witnesses, which I believe to be the church, you know what the result is? The result is that people fall down in glorifying worship towards God. Remember the judgments in the previous chapter that we talked about? The judgments of the plague, they were supposed to be restorative. They were supposed to move people towards repentance. But for many people, it did not dissuade them. They did not move towards repentance. And what all the judgments and chapter and the chapters preceding this could not accomplish, the resurrection did. I can't help when I read this passage, but think of Philippians chapter 2. The Jesus Christ being fully God decided that equality with God was not something to be held on to, but emptied himself, gave it up, and became human. And when he became human, he suffered, and he died, and he was raised according to the plan of God. And what's the result? The result, Paul says, maybe not now, 
But eventually, because of that resurrection, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It will be unequivocally clear for the righteous and for the unrighteous, and they will acknowledge it. In other words, it seems like these two witnesses, which I take to be the church at large, are replicating the presence and the power of Jesus Christ. And God is replicating the power of the resurrection through them. By the way, let me say one more thing. Some people get really unnerved by symbolic interpretations of passage like this and other passages in Scripture. Symbolism, in theological understanding, symbolism is not a contradiction of historicity. Not at all. To take images symbolically does not mean that that interpreter doesn't believe in history and that certain events will transpire. It's a different way of understanding historical events through the symbols that are spiritual and trying to identify what's going on in the world based on the symbols. So whatever you do, please don't discount as unorthodox or outside the circle, those who embrace a symbolic understanding of multiple texts, especially Revelation. They, and I guess I should say I, am doing my best to interpret the theological intent of the Scriptures when we engage in that. So the final thing actually is a section that we didn't read. It's the final section of chapter 11, and it ends this way. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and was and is to come, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your prophet and your people who, will re- who revere your name, both great and small, and for all this destroying, for all, excuse me, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within this temple was seen the Ark of the Covenant. And there came flashes of lightning and rumblings, peals of thunder and earthquake, and a severe hailstorm. The most famous church in the world, maybe besides St. Peter's, is Westminster Abbey. Westminster Abbey has 
in a high church setting, Episcopal church, a high altar. And there are words etched above that high altar, basically looking down on the high altar. And those words are these. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Don't those words remind you of the Hallelujah Chorus? They're words right from here. In front of the great altar, there's a a long aisle, pavement. Imagine this being the great altar and that the pavement. For over a thousand years, kings and queens have walked down that pavement kneeled in front of the great altar underneath the words that I just read. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And if those leaders are humble enough to understand the words, they realize that their kingdoms are at best temporary and at best, just a slight reflection of the perfect judgments of God. They stand under the sovereignty of God. So, Tuesday, there's going to be an election in this country. Could perhaps you and I take these words and repeat them all day long? Could we remind ourselves that no matter what the outcome, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God? Could we remind ourselves that overarching all the chaos that's in front of us is the sovereign plan of God? That in reality, he uses the foolishness of men, he uses the decisions of men, he uses the quirkiness of history, he uses elections and everything else to manipulate human activity towards the direction of his final historical plan for the earth. Could we do that? If we could, I think maybe we'd be grasping the essential message of chapter 11 in the book of Revelation. What we don't know is the future. What we don't know are times and details. But what we do know is that the message of the book of Revelation speaks to all of us and says, if you will faithfully follow Jesus Christ, if you will, your future is secure. Neither life nor death nor anything can separate you from God. It does remind you of Romans chapter 8, doesn't it? Maybe that came to mind. 
Paul reminds us that our present sufferings, even if it's our personal sufferings, let's admit, right? Can you just admit with me that 2020 was from the abyss, right? It was horrible. And then let's remember this verse, that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that awaits us. All creation groans in anticipation of its redemption or resurrection. And in this hope, it and we are saved. So in the midst of our personal suffering, our corporate suffering, our national suffering, our global suffering, we need to return to the center, the anchor, if you will, of God in the person of Jesus Christ. (laughs) that's a first (laughs) so here's the word God is the sovereign Lord of history and nothing nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord why? why? Because God is writing the story of history. And it is God's story. And we are given an invitation to accept the dignity of being part of it. So let's live like that, especially this week, shall we? And pray that your kingdom will come and your will will be done on earth just like it is in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, for the difficulty of revelation, we give you thanks. It reminds us that we don't have all wisdom. It reminds us that we are not sovereign. I thank you for the difficulty of the Scripture itself, which challenges us in directions that We wish it did not. The mystery that confronts us in your words that reminds us that we are not wise. So Lord, not just this week, but always, help us to submit to your love and to trust your ultimate plans. And Lord, Your plans are good for us. Your plans are not to harm us, but to prosper us. Your plans are not for our ultimate demise or our death, but for our resurrection. Your plans for us are eternal life. Nothing we could do on our own would get us there. Nothing we do could earn us that reward. But you've given us a simple promise that if we trust and follow, these things are ours. And we thank you for that. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.